Mr. Carl, I, I'm an actress. I'm a character actress. I can play this part any way you want. Honey, I'm sure that you're a very, you very good actress. What you're it's just for? that you're a little bit too soft what? and genteel. You're not threatening enough. Not threatening enough? How's this? You take your hands off me, or I'm going to knit your balls right through the roof of your mouth. Is that enough of a threat? Start. Yes, I think I know what y'all really want. You want some gross caricature of a woman to prove some idiotic point, like, like power makes women masculine or masculine women are ugly. Well, shame on the woman that lets you do that, on any woman that lets you do that. And that means you, dear. Miss Marshall, shame on you, you macho shithead. An out-of-work actor finally gets the role of his dreams by dressing up as a woman. Listen as we talk about Joey Tribbiani's long-lost twin, mimes in New York City, and what this movie has in common with Saved by the Bell and Punky Brewster. Then we find out if Tootsie stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. My name is Alan Noah, and your name is James Brief. That is my name, and we've been doing this like almost 340 episodes, so we're we're just about there. This is 336. Good for us, and good for the listeners for being with us for 336 episodes. That's right. They've never missed one. Not allowed. But let's talk about Tootsie. This is a movie that I have wanted to see... I never saw it before. It was the 40th anniversary. Had you ever seen it before? Well, you know, I've strangely been obsessed with box office numbers. Not just box office numbers, but box office uh, rankings and who's number one. I've loved this forever. And more exciting than just who was number one was, oh, this film was number one twice in a row. And wow, this film four weeks in a row is number one. That's huge. And, you know, we've talked about a a lot on this podcast. Whenever we talk about a film from 1997 or even the first half of 1998, we always say that uh, this film came in at number two because uh, what came in at number one in early 98? Titanic. That's right. And Titanic broke the record of being number one for the most weeks in a row, and it had beaten a film called Tootsie. (laughs) And I was always like, what? the hell is Tootsie? And no, no, that's not true. It's not what the hell was Tootsie. I knew what Tootsie was because Tootsie was one of those films that I would pass in the video store. I remembered that poster of the woman on the front of it with this American flag banner. And it seemed to be a big deal film because it was kind of prominent at the mom and pop store that we used to uh, visit, but I never watched it. And then I randomly saw it 15, 20 years ago, I think it was a library rental. So I had seen it exactly once, barely remembered it at all, but uh, it popped up on streaming and I figured, let's give it a go. I mean, this film captivated America for like three months. Let's see why. All right. Well, for people who don't remember what the movie's about, it's about Michael Dorsey, a talented and classically trained actor who can't find work because he has a reputation of being difficult to work with. 
When his manager tells him he's blacklisted by every casting agent, Michael decides to dress as a woman named Dorothy Michaels. Dorothy's no-nonsense approach to acting quickly gets her a job on a soap opera. Her character soon becomes very popular, but Michael falls for his co-star, Julie, which complicates things. Meanwhile, Michael is trying to maintain another relationship with a woman named Sandy, and Julie's father falls for Dorothy. Ultimately, Michael comes clean to everyone, but will he be forgiven for his deceit? So this is the part where I would ask you how it did at the box office, but you already said it did very, very well. And uh, yeah, I guess America just loved Tootsie. Yeah, I mean, it was a fascinating deep dive into the stats here because this uh, movie was made with a $20 million budget. It opened on December 17th, 1982. It opened at number one and it remained at number one for three 13 weeks in a row. And then actually it returned to number one in week 17. People were in love with this film and this is word of mouth because its biggest weekend was like week four. So it was a really weird run. And the thing is, it is completely escaped from the zeitgeist. I don't think it escaped from the zeitgeist. I had definitely heard people talk about it. It is on a lot of lists of like best comedies, most influential movies. It's been selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. This is a movie that people do still talk about. Oh, yeah. And I was looking over the awards that this film had won. It was nominated for. It won the Golden Globe for Best Picture. It was nominated for Best Picture for the Academy Award Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress. Um, Best Supporting Actress won a Jessica Lange. Best Screenplay, Cinematography, Original Song, Best Sound. I mean, it, it had won so many awards, Grammys even. I mean, I had heard of it, but I just don't think for this much uh, acclaim, I feel like it should be higher. Like, I'll bet you 10 people on the street, uh, like nine of them will have never heard of this film. I don't know about that. I think uh, people who know about movies will know of it. Yeah, that's not 10 people on the street. Depending on the street, to quote Flight of the Concords. But let's talk about some of these things about this movie that are questionable when it comes to do they stand the test of time? First off being this idea that for Michael, his big problem is that it's just too hard out there for a guy. And that's kind of laughable. You know, like, it's notoriously easier for guys. And this is a white guy, a white straight guy living in New York City, aged, I don't know, like late 30s, early 40s, something like that. He's got it good. And I feel like him saying that life is too hard for me is kind of like, you know, when you see these right wing nut jobs when they're like, you know, being a straight white man is really tough these days. Boo hoo. It's like, fuck you. No, it's not. Shut up. You've got it easier than anyone. Well, I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying, but I think that Michael just, he doesn't get it. He thinks the problem is it's hard being a guy. The problem, his agent tells him very clearly, it's not that you're a guy, it's you. This guy's an asshole. When he uh, becomes Dorothy, 
Dorothy is interrupting the director and she's correcting him. And I'm not necessarily saying that Dorothy's wrong in the things that she's saying because a lot of the stuff she's saying is correct about the character. But this guy is very abrasive. He's an asshole. He is a brilliant actor who is incredibly tough to work with. And you're right. It's like these guys that are saying, all my problems are because of, you know, whatever boogeyman of the, of the week it is, a Mexican, a Jew, uh, whatever it is. Cancel culture. Yes, it, it's not them. But that's the same way here. I think he's just so clueless that he has no idea how much of an asshole he is. That's a valid point. And when you're talking about him being on set as Dorothy and she's notoriously difficult, she also gets away with a lot of shit on set of this soap opera where she's changing lines and she's completely rewriting the character and she's making this character what she wants to be. Ron, the director, uh, who's played by Dabney Coleman, he doesn't like this woman who's talking back and, you know, making his life tough, but she does it. Like, she gets away with that. And I did kind of think that that sort of was maybe not that realistic. First off, she's a new hire. Forget about her gender. Like, she's a new person that comes onto the set and she's like, I have ideas you don't get to make all of these new rules on your first day here. Like, that's not how it works. You know, you have to, like, build up a reputation and build up rapport and build up gravitas if you're going to start questioning lines in the script and things like that. And the fact that she's a woman who's able to do it and the man wasn't able to do it when he was Michael, I think that does sort of lend some credence to his theory that it is easier for a woman. There's one aspect about Tootsie that we haven't mentioned yet. And let's face it, Tootsie is not an attractive woman. And that is by design. It's not because this is a man. I mean, I'd say conventionally attractive, like, you know, Terry Garr and uh, Jessica Langar in, in this film. Um, Dustin often said... Tootsie is the kind of woman who is smart. She is witty. She's the kind of person I wish I, I knew and I, I'd be friends with her. But... The reality is I never would have talked to Tootsie at a party because she's not attractive. And I realized, oh my God, look at all of the women I never spoke to because they were unattractive. And he admitted that, that he had probably been you know, stupid in the past for that. But when what you were saying about her abrasiveness, I think it has to do a little bit with the fact that she's not beautiful. I feel like the Jessica Lang character, she is this beautiful woman on the set, and she always looks at Dorothy like, I wish I could say that. But she's a little bit more like damsel in distress, and Dorothy has this conviction to say it. Just something I was thinking about from his interview. I think the fact that she's not good looking adds a, a, a sexist element to it, but I think that allows her to be taken seriously by Dabney Coleman. I think if she was beautiful he wouldn't take it seriously if she yelled at him that's a valid point i think though that also then leads to another kind of shadow that is over this movie which is that dustin hoffman himself has been accused of sexual misconduct on sets today i kind of went down a little bit of a rabbit hole reading some of the allegations against him they're creepy man like, there's shit in this movie where the guys are pretty aggressive to the young women on the set of the soap opera. He was doing some pretty aggressive shit to women, except they weren't women. They were girls. They were like 16, 17 years old. I guess I should say allegedly because he denies it and whatever. But like knowing that Dustin Hoffman 
did some of this shit, allegedly, and he champions all of these feminist causes in the interviews like you're mentioning, and he plays this character in this movie, it does kind of just make the whole movie feel like inauthentic to me, at least, you know, like he's pretending to be this champion and defender of women's rights, but Dustin Hoffman himself wouldn't have minded uh, hitting on uh, whatever pretty young girl was on set too. Terrible, terrible analogy, but it's like that Saved by the Bell episode where like the actor comes in and he like films the don't do drugs PSA and then he wants to do drugs with Zach Morris and Kelly Kapowski. You know, it's like, oh, I thought you said this. Yeah, but I didn't mean it. I just said it on camera. I realize it's a really shitty analogy, but like, you know, it just makes the whole thing feel like, oh, so this big statement that you're making, it's all fucking bullshit. Um, I want to call her Dorothy. You were calling her Tootsie. They don't call her Tootsie in this movie. Like it happens once where like uh, Dabney Coleman refers to her as Toots. And, like, that's really it. She doesn't go by Tootsie in the movie. You're right. And I'm referring to her as that just because it's the title character. But sure. you're exactly right. It's Dorothy. And uh, she even corrects him and says, don't call me Tootsie. Right. I just felt like it was a weird choice for the title because it said, like, once. Um, But she goes into the set and she takes charge. And she starts, like, delivering these empowering feminist messages And, like, when you really think about it, some of these messages are great in theory, but not really. Like, she ad-libs at one point, she's talking to this abused wife, and the script says that she's supposed to tell this abused wife to go to a shelter and go to therapy. And then Dorothy, in character, says, no, that's not what you should do. You should take the heaviest thing in that apartment and you beat him with it. And, like, cool, she's telling her to fight back. But also, easier said than done, you know? Like, it's not like abused wives never thought of picking up something heavy and throwing it at their husband. It's hard to do. And then there's another part where the head doctor is a pig and the script says, well, we all need to support him while he's going through his tough times. And she changes it because she doesn't like that. She's now going to be a feminist. And she says, we'll get a cattle prod and we'll hit him in the heebie-jeebies or whatever word she uses for nuts and like haha that's cute and everyone laughs but like no have the guy fired he's a predator in the fictional hospital and also on set there it's like she's trying to do feminism but she's doing it with like a male slant you know what i mean um i didn't really pick up on that at that point but uh you make a good point i see it from your perspective now you know speaking of which the the uh, The whole point of this film is that uh, Michael becomes Dorothy Michael and uh, Michaels. Yeah. Yeah. It reminded me of another film that we had seen. Uh, What other film could this remind you of possibly? Are you thinking of the trilogy we did of Ladybugs, Just One of the Guys, and She's the Man? That's correct. Yes. It could be any one of these films. But the thing about this film, Tootsie, was that... Michael's talking to his agent, and his agent's like, no one will hire you in this town. And he goes, no one will hire me. And then literally the next scene, 
it's Dorothy, Tootsie, like walking down the street. In Ladybugs, he has the idea of like, we need uh, someone else on our girls team that will help. And then Jonathan Brand, this a boy, at least goes, no way, uh-uh. And then you get a jump cut to him in a girl's outfit. You had something very similar in, uh, in She's the Man. She had a whole montage of how she's going to change into a, a guy and then uh, just one of the guys. She makes this conscious decision that she's going to go undercover. This came out of nowhere. It almost seemed like they, they cut a scene. Didn't it seem to you that it was really abrupt? Yes, it did. I read something where the marketing materials for this movie, you know, like the movie poster you were talking about, it was very obvious that there is a man in drag in this movie. So maybe they just felt like they could just get to it. They didn't need that explanation. I agree with you, though. From a storytelling perspective, you need to go from A to B. Also, I'm going to be a dick and correct you. I'm sorry. It's not a jump cut. It's a smash cut. And there were a lot of smash cuts in this movie. I did notice that. There's one point where he's like, what am I going to tell Sandy? That I just inherited all of this money from a dead relative? Smash cut to, yeah, she died and she left me the exact amount of money I needed. There's another one later when he's watching Julie's kid. And right before Julie leaves, he says... How hard could watching a baby be? Smash cut to the baby screaming her head off and him running around like, what am I supposed to do? Smash cuts are fine. They're used in comedy a lot. But I did notice that there were quite a few in this movie. And what's the difference between that and a jump cut? A jump cut is an editing error. It's like that episode of The Simpsons when he's talking about, I touched her sweet cam. And it's like very clearly edited. And you can see the clock behind Homer that's moving. It's like an edit that is a very clear mistake. It's something that's wrong. Okay. Jump cut is bad. Smash cut is like for comedy. Got it. I remember we talked about smash cuts uh, when we did uh, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. There were a lot in that movie too. Um, But from a test of time perspective, soap operas, not really a thing anymore. You know, I think there's three left on the networks. Most of them have moved to streaming. Most of them have been canceled. And in this movie, soap operas are not just a thing, but they are a big fucking deal. There's a montage where you see Tootsie like on every magazine cover. She's like shaking things up in the soap opera world. I mean, that's kind of laughable from a 2022 perspective. I was wondering, I mean, she makes it to the cover of something very big. It was like not Vanity Fair, but it was like Time Newsweek, something very big. And I was thinking, how do these people not ask, like, where are you from? And, like, <laughs> how does time not, like, look into... No, she didn't go to this high school. And that's just what I was thinking back in my head. There is a guy in this film. You mentioned him. You called him the asshole doctor. He's uh, Dr. John Van Horn. He's played by the late George Gaines. And how do you remember George Gaines? He's Punky Brewster's dad. Of course. He'd always be like, Punky, Punky. <laughs> That was really good. Joanna and I, my sister, we used to do that uh, impression of him. Punky. He was such a cute dad. Yes. Uh, like an old dad. Yeah, old dad. Because he adopted her. Uh-huh. Um, but that guy, he plays someone who is a piece of shit, misogynist asshole on set. And he hits on every woman. He kisses every woman that he sees. And from a test of time perspective, that works. The Me Too movement has taught us that there are a lot of these assholes everywhere, of course, but 
in entertainment, on movie sets, on TV sets, yeah, these guys love to fucking prey on every female who walks on set. You know, uh, everything I know about soap operas is from fictionalized soap operas. I've never seen a soap opera in my life. And the most exposure I have to soap operas, and this is going to be embarrassing, is when Joey Tribbiani on Friends was (laughs) a soap opera actor for many years. And Joey joked that he would sometimes ad-lib lines, which writers don't particularly like when you change the screenplay. It turns out Joey meant, like, when the screenplay says... You are my uh, barber. He thought it was ad-libbing to say, you're my barber, instead of you are my barber. But as a consequence of him telling Soap Opera Digest that he ad-libs and changes the writer's lines, they wrote him out of the story and made him fall down an elevator shaft. Right. And it just made me think that, why do they let this woman ad-lib entire monologues? And not just like a line here or there. There was one time that she uh, she didn't want to kiss Dr. John Michael uh, wasn't interested in that as he was playing Dorothy that worked in the storyline but are the writers on these sets gonna allow her to keep changing the lines every single time well I feel like that's what I was saying before and you were saying well she gets away with it because she's unattractive yeah I mean I guess I'm talking about that like she gets to talk a little bit back but I don't think she'd get away with all of this stuff Short answer is, I don't think so. Like I was saying before, like she's the new person on set. No, you can't just rewrite everything. There is stuff about this set that is unrealistic. Like when um, she is given the contract extension, when like the head of the show or network or whatever, Dabney Coleman's boss is like, you're doing great for us. Our ratings are through the roof and we're going to give you a contract extension. The first thing I was thinking of in that scene was like, why would she say that? She's giving her all of the leverage by saying that we need you on set. Please accept our paltry raise. And then she could turn around and say, well, if you need me that bad, you're going to pay me an extra however many hundreds of dollars an episode. So that I felt was pretty unrealistic. Um, Neither here nor there, but maybe, is like the plot point of sometimes someone ruins the tape and so then they have to either do reshoots or go live. I don't know what soap opera productions were like in 1982, but like, could that have happened? You know, like where someone spills, I think they say celery tonic on a reel and it destroys all of their footage. It happens twice in the movie. And I was thinking about it from a test of time perspective of like, well, now everything's shot on digital, but you could kind of see how that could still happen if someone hands the wrong person an SD card or someone takes the SD card and formats it. It could happen. That's happened to us while recording podcast episodes. It's happening right now with no SD card in this recording. <gasps> really? Really. No. Ah, you got me. No, you didn't get me, James. But like, there was some stuff about this soap opera set that seemed a little not true to life. Um, probably, and that's that's very likely. Uh, you know, I want to talk about Sandy and Michael's relationship. Uh, this is uh, Dustin Hoffman and Terry Garr's character. He seems to have had this girlfriend before the movie begins. And well, they're friends. Wait, are they dating? I can never tell. When the movie begins, they are friends. They say something like, we've been friends for six years. And then what happens is 
Michael is at her apartment and they're going to hang out and she jumps in the shower and then he starts looking into her wardrobe because he's like looking for ideas for clothes. He's like, I'm going to try on some clothes. She comes out of the shower. He's like half naked just in his underwear and she's like, what are you doing? And then his quick thinking response is, I want to have sex with you, which, you know, the guy's an actor. He should be able to think on his feet a little bit better than that. And she's like, sure, we'll have sex. Why not? But then it ruins their friendship. And I really hate the way they treat the Sandy character. You know, it's one thing for him to fuck over a friend and, you know, do wrong things and maybe learn a lesson or whatever. But she gets like no resolution to her storyline. Her storyline is basically just she gets mad that she's a jilted lover and that's it. There's one part when Michael is confronting Dabney Coleman and is like, you're a liar and a cheater and you're deceiving her. He's talking about Julie. Uh, And Dabney Coleman's like, well, I never said we were exclusive and there can be a little bit of dishonesty. And Michael, as Dorothy, is yelling at him, even though he's doing the same thing to Sandy. And I appreciated like the, the mirroring there of you shouldn't do this thing, but he's doing it too. But it never pays off. There's never any resolution with that character and that relationship. And that really kind of irked me. Uh, I do think that the movie does not treat her very well. Uh, I mean, she has a point to show Michael feeling guilty and bad about stuff. It's just that they they don't resolve it at the end. Uh, I don't think they really give her a good ending. Yeah, I think I just felt like it was more like deliberate because she wasn't the main love interest. And that's fine. She can be, you know, like the, what do they call it? The Baxter, you know, like the other romantic interest that gets kind of left at the sidelines. But she still could have had some kind of resolution. He could like uh, Jessica Lange's character better. And he could even be an asshole and leave her for Jessica Lange. But just finish the storyline. Exactly. There is a funny part that also doesn't really stand the test of time where because Dorothy is Michael and he has one phone line because this is 1982, he can't ever answer his phone because it could be Sandy calling to talk to Michael, but it could be someone he works with calling to talk to Dorothy. And how does he answer the phone? He can't. He could have his roommate, Jeff, answer the phone, who, by the way, is Bill Murray, who's not credited in the opening credits of this movie. And then when I saw him on screen, I was like, holy shit, Bill Murray's in this movie? I didn't know that. But even Jeff, the roommate, can't answer the phone because Dorothy wouldn't live with a man. So they have to get an answering machine. And all of this is very easily solved with cell phones. From a test of time perspective, that kind of made me laugh. Yeah, that is pretty funny. There is another subplot of this film, and that is Julie, uh, Jessica Lange's character. She becomes very good friends with Dorothy. Of course, uh, Dorothy, who's really Michael, he has a big crush on Julie. And Julie invites Dorothy to uh, stay at her father's house with her. It's the very predictable jokes of the dad figures they're going to share a bed, you know, like best friends sleeping over. Although it looks like they have a large house. Like it looks like there would be place for her. It's not like a, you know, a studio apartment in New York City where you have to share a couch bed. Right. And then Julie makes a joke of like, oh, he thinks I'm 12 years old having a sleepover. But of course... I'm not, I'm an adult, and you're an older woman, so yeah, we should sleep in separate rooms and separate beds, because of course we would. 
Yeah, and uh, Julie's father, he starts to develop a crush on uh, Dorothy Tootsie. And, you know, of course, in the end, it's revealed that Dorothy is Michael. And the dad, um, Les, he's not so upset about it. They, like, get a beer together and they kind of become friends. But uh, Les does say, the only reason you're still living is because we didn't kiss. That is pretty fucking homophobic. And there's more of that in the movie. Like, earlier in the movie, Dorothy is going through all of these motions and doing all of these ad-libs because she doesn't want to kiss Dr. John, the creepy old guy, uh, Punky Brewster's dad. She does all of these maneuverings so she won't have to kiss him because he's a guy and he can't kiss another guy. And then there's a joke at the end where he says, hey, that was a great scene. And he gives her a kiss. Ah, he did all that stuff so he wouldn't have to kiss a man. And then he did have to kiss a man. LOL, 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 LOL. Like, there's a lot of homophobic shit in this movie. There was a part where Michael is talking to his agent, who is the movie's director, Sidney Pollack. He's acting in the movie as well. But, like, they do use the word gay and lesbian, which I wasn't sure if they would. I mean, it's 1982. I I didn't really know. It could be a funny conversation of, well, this person thinks I'm gay and this person thinks I'm a lesbian. And are you gay? No, Dorothy isn't gay, but she thinks that I am and whatever. And cool, like they acknowledge it, but it doesn't really go anywhere other than homophobic jokes. Um, well, I, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with that. I only remember one part where they say lesbian, and that's where Dorothy kind of makes a move on Julie. Yeah. And Julie gets taken aback. And Julie actually is surprisingly progressive for 1982. She's like, Dorothy, that's, that's totally okay if you're a lesbian. Yeah, Julie thinks... Dorothy is gay, and she's okay with that, but she's like, I just can't be friends with you because I'm just going to be leading you on. She's not homophobic. It's more of the the stuff with Michael and Julie's dad and Michael and the yeah. doctor and stuff. And there is also an element of transphobia in this movie, too. Even though Dorothy is not transgender, there's still this element of there's a man who wears women's clothes and acts like a woman. Isn't that funny? That is transphobic. And there's also that element of transphobia where it's just that transgender people are sneaky. They're lying to you. And, you know, that's not true at all, but that's the stereotype. And this movie does kind of play into that. Yeah, if if they do label them as sneaky, uh, they, uh, that's certainly a you know negative stereotype. But transphobia, I think, is more in the punchline is necessarily he is a man dressing as a woman. He's trying to get away with being a woman. I think the joke they would make is more, look at this kid wearing makeup. You're not supposed to wear makeup. That's a woman's thing. But in here, sometimes he doesn't quite get it. You know, he's walking down the street and there's a run in his stockings and he's pulling the pantyhose. And I think those are fine. I don't think those are offensive jokes. But there there definitely are some that today that that would be certainly not written the same way. The transphobia thing it's less about like individual jokes and more like the overall just theme of this is a man who's being sneaky and wearing a dress and trying to get away with being a woman to some end as opposed to no this is a 
part of his identity. And he does say that at the end of the movie when he's talking to Julie. He says that I was a better man with you as a woman than I ever was with a woman as a man. And that line kind of sums it up. And there is even talk earlier in the movie about how men should embrace their femininity, right? And isn't that a good thing? And it's okay for women to embrace their masculinity. And people don't like the character that Dorothy plays on the soap opera because she's too masculine. Well, too fucking bad because she's talking back to the shitty old doctor who is like a rapist, basically. Like, good for her. And then Michael getting in touch with his feminine side, that's a good thing. That makes him a better man. Looking at it from a 2022 perspective, you would look at it and say, oh, well, I have this feminine side and cool. Like, that's good. I'm not just going to run away from it. Whereas at the end of the movie, after he says that line, he's like, but now I just need to learn how to be a woman. But without that dress, because, you know, that dress was terrible. Like, why was it terrible? If that helped you get in touch with that side of yourself, that's a good thing, right? I think it's more of an unfortunate joke. I don't think they meant it in the way that comes across today. Yeah. I think it's more unfortunate they happened to end on that joke. But um, it does end kind of ambiguously if he and Julie are, are together or she seems to have at least like forgiven him and she's willing to talk to him. And I, I think it's actually probably better that it's vague. You can kind of headcanon it yourself. <laughs> I love when you make headcanon a verb. I think it's implied that they're going to date. I think that is the implication of them kind of walking down the street together, real friendly-like. You're right, it's not explicitly said, but I think just based on, like, movie logic, that's the conclusion that you could come to. That's true. And speaking of the uh, the ending, um, I guess we should talk about the end of Dorothy. As you mentioned before, there's all this talk about if the tape is ruined, we might have to go live. And then at the end, they're stuck and they have to go live. Now, uh, Dorothy, she's going to wind up revealing herself on the air as uh, Michael. Uh, I like that he actually came clean within the context of the show. Because I thought when he first took off his wig, I'm like... You can't do that. You can't break character and, like, you're going to announce to the world that you couldn't get a job as a man. Um, Dorothy's character is Emily on the soap opera. And she says, no, I'm not Emily. And then she takes off her wig. I'm actually Emily's twin brother, Edward. And that's one of those dun-dun-dun cliché. I've never seen a soap opera, but the cliché is always, it was the evil twin, long-lost twin sister. And um, I think even in Friends, that's how they bring back uh, Joey Tribbiani's uh, character because I think it's his like evil twin brother or something like that so I I thought that was kind of cute how she did it but she does this long speech and uh, I thought the speech was a little bit too long to be honest oh yeah but um, I I thought it was a clever send off of her character I wasn't sure how they were going to do it I thought she was just going to be revealed like off camera not off camera but off set and it was going to be you know in their apartment or something and then he have to come clean to the crew or something. But I like how he came clean if it was a bit too long. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it's easy because it's a soap opera and it totally works that that's a soap opera twist. It's also a little bit of a cop-out for Michael because he gets to do it in character on camera and he doesn't have to confront every single person that he's lied to individually look them in the eye and tell them what he's done. He just gets to do it once. And it's kind of a cowardly way of doing it. 
um, when Sandy finds out, she's watching the TV and she screams and then that's it. That's a, the end of that character. We don't see her ever again, which is like, she doesn't get to yell at him and like curse him out or anything. Nope. No resolution there. Punky Brewster's dad, when he finds out, he's like, uh-oh, does your roommate know? Which is like maybe a little bit funny because he went to Dorothy's apartment and he saw that uh, she had a roommate and he thought Jeff was uh, a boyfriend or something. Although that seems also really fucking weird because he's about to rape her. He is super aggressive with Dorothy. And the only reason that it doesn't happen is because Jeff walks in, Jeff being Bill Murray, the roommate. And Dustin Hoffman has a line afterwards when Jeff is kind of like giving him shit about it. And he says, this is not funny. Rape is not a laughing matter. But the whole scene is a joke. Like, you know, rape is not a laughing matter. Yes, you're right. But you're kind of treating it like it is. That whole scene I thought was really weird. Yeah, I agree with you there. Um, but I guess we got to say uh, whether or not we think the film stands the test of time. What do you think, Al? Tootsie, it was in the theaters. It was a smash hit 40 years ago. But does it hold up today? This is a complicated one because there is a lot in this movie that does stand the test of time. Like watching sexist assholes on set post me too yeah this stands the test of time absolutely like all of this shit is still around the problem with it is that there's also a lot of stuff in this movie that doesn't stand the test of time and the way it treats gender identity and being around someone who might be male might be female how do they identify a lot of that stuff doesn't really stand the test of time. These are all concepts that are more recent and didn't really exist in a public consciousness kind of way in 1982. And I was thinking about one of those movies you mentioned earlier, Just One of the Guys. It would have been so easy for that movie to have a character decide that after the events of that movie, maybe they're gay, maybe they're non-binary, maybe they're transgender. And those words weren't super common in the 80s, and that's not what happens there. It's not what happens in Tootsie. The way that all of these storylines resolve in Tootsie is heterosexual, cisgender, boy and girl together, the way it's supposed to be. I'm saying that sarcastically. I've been saying a lot of this shit sarcastically. I, I hope that's come across with my tone of voice. I think you're trying to quote Avril Lavigne's skater boy. He was a boy. She was a girl. Could I make it any more obvious? Right. And, you know, that kind of stuff is, I think, the epitome of heteronormative. It's just assumed that the boy and the girl get together. And that's not the way the world works. This is a movie set in New York City, set in the world of soap operas. Soap operas in New York City. There's going to be gay people there. I mean, that's not a controversial statement. But in this movie, there are no gay people. There's only people who think that somebody might be gay, but don't worry, they're not. Again, don't worry, I'm saying sarcastically. This movie also kind of made me think of another thing we've talked about in earlier episodes, the concept of a white savior movie, where it's a movie about how racism is bad. And the message is great. Yeah, racism is bad. But that message is delivered by the white guy in the movie. And that feels weird. This movie has a message of sexism is bad. Yeah, I agree with that message. But the messenger is the guy. 
He's the one who learns the lesson that sexism is bad. He's the one that teaches the audience, hey, men in the audience, sexism is bad. And kind of feels like the message is right, but the messenger is wrong. There are a lot of problems with this movie, and I think there are more reasons that it doesn't stand the test of time than reasons that it does. So I'm going to say no, it doesn't stand the test of time. And there's one more reason why. If this movie were to be remade today, if someone took this script and was shopping it around Hollywood now in 2022, I do not think there is any way this movie would get made. Because... People who are, quote-unquote, woke, really progressive, they wouldn't like this movie because they would accuse it of being homophobic and transphobic and all of those things, and they'd have some good arguments there. Meanwhile, people on the right would hate this movie because they would say it's just liberal Hollywood pushing their woke agenda of shoving trans stuff down my face, and I don't like it, damn it. So ultimately, it would be a movie that the left would hate, the right would hate, And then you have a movie that has no audience and what studio executive is going to greenlight that movie. Whichever executive greenlit bros. How is that related to bros? Because it seems like the left did not come out for that film and the right certainly didn't come out for that film. So it was just left with no audience. They were hoping for like a mainstream audience. That is a very good point. But the left didn't hate it. They just didn't go and pay money for it. That's true. I think you make a very good point in that people would pick sides in yes. a film like this. Yes, absolutely. And I think it would end up having enemies on all sides, which is not a good thing for a movie's box office. And clearly it didn't hurt the box office in 1982. It did gangbusters. It made a ton of money. There was a musical that hit Broadway uh, pre-COVID, and uh, I think it was nominated for a bunch of Tonys, so people did like it. I just really have a hard time wrapping my head around it coming out today. And I do just want to say, I do understand Dorothy slash Michael is not transgender, but I've had the misfortune of talking to some really transphobic people in my life, and Not only do they hate trans people, they don't understand trans people. They don't know what being transgender is. And they would 100% point at this movie, this character, and say, trans, evil, bad, I hate it. Without understanding, you know, the deeper context. So anyway, that's a very long-winded way of saying, no, I don't think Tootsie stands the test of time. What do you think? Um, well... First of all, the acting is brilliant in this film. I mean, I mentioned earlier, I mean, every actor in this film was nominated and or won the biggest acting awards in the world. And it's a quite entertaining film, forgetting the themes and the problems you may have with it. When I look at these films, I do look at the runtime because I try to plan, you know, when I have to watch it and you know, sure. not watch it too late. You do notice the older films tend to be shorter. I was like, come on, this is going to be one of those 92-minute films. And it was two hours. And I was like, all right, two hours. It entertained me for two hours. I feel like what you said is an article that I would read on BuzzFeed or something that is like, here's why Tootsie really isn't the film that you remember it to be. Here's six or seven problems with this film that you liked. And I'd go, huh, you're right. Those are problems. And in the end, I'm going to go, 
I still like this film. Why? Because the overall theme of what it's trying to do, you're right, it is a white male that's saying this, but I think in 1982, it wasn't going to be the man that was going to say this big feminist speech, and it wasn't going to be Julie that was going to say a feminist speech. So you had this Tootsie character who had the quote-unquote confidence of Michael. He was able to deliver it as this tough woman. I think people on set respected her as a woman. I, I think even though you know we know it as a man, it comes across different. So I I got the themes of it. I liked what she said. I think Dustin Hoffman is so good in this film. There's a part when you first meet Dorothy and she's first trying out for the soap opera. And, you know, I'm not that good at seeing good acting, really. But within the film, it's always find it interesting when actors play bad acting or good acting. He is brilliant or she is brilliant in that first audition of hers. And I just really like that. I think it's entertaining. There are things that need to be updated, but I still think that because it's just an entertaining film, yes, you have to watch it in the lens that this is 40 years old. It tried to do well. Its heart was in the right place. For me, teetering on a brilliantly made film with problems, I will say that this film stands the test of time. I see that. I did find the movie to be entertaining, and for all of my criticisms of it, I agree with you that... It's well-written, it's well-acted, it is entertaining on a lot of different levels. Bill Murray is in it. Like, Bill Murray is great. I love watching Bill Murray. That first scene where, like, they have a party and he's, like, going on, like, these long rants about what it means to be an actor. And in the first shot, he's, like, talking to a whole crowd of people. And then in the second shot, there's just, like, a couple people. And then in the last shot, he's talking to an empty table, like, with his girlfriend kind of behind him, humoring him as he's talking to, like, nobody. Oh, also, by the way, the play that he's writing, the Bill Murray character, it's about love canal do you know the story of love canal no i do not so basically it's like this horrible tragic story about this development in upstate new york like over by niagara falls which was built on toxic waste and all of these people had all of these horrific birth defects and and health problems and it's truly heartbreaking but like the fact that you don't know this story is understandable because it was i think like late 70s and so the references in this movie to Love Canal don't stand the test of time. I did like the one line. I think it's his agent says, nobody's going to pay $20 to watch people living next to chemical waste. They could do that in New Jersey. Ah, I'm a sucker for a good joke at New Jersey's expense. Hey, I'm from Jersey. <laughs> toxic waste, New Jersey. But I mean, that's a joke about toxic waste. And really, if you read about Love Canal, it's utterly, utterly heartbreaking. Oh, and one other thing, when uh, Michael is like sad at the end of the movie, he's walking in Central Park and he sees a mime and then he pushes the mime over. I feel like that was a thing in the 80s that like in New York City, in Central Park specifically, there were just mimes everywhere. Do you remember that? Well, there was a very famous mime in the 70s, uh, Marseille, Marceau. Marcel Marceau. Marcel, yeah, I mean, I know that... In Mel Brooks' film, Silent Movie, he's the only character that has any lines. He, oh, I, really? Yeah, I think there's one part where he just says, quiet, and I think he screams like, that's it. That's the only line in the entire film. And that character famously was a mime that you never heard speak once, like Teller from Penn and Teller. Gotcha. I mean, have you ever seen a mime in New York City in all the time you've lived here? I've never seen an actual mime, no. Okay. I want to say... 
that we did see one in France. Maybe I'm just like conflating real life with movies and stuff. No, I saw them in Europe. I did. I saw street performing mimes in Europe, but I've never seen them in America. Oh, okay. Neither here nor there. I just wanted to mention that. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, James, we're going to do it. We're going to talk about the movie that broke the box office record held by Tootsie. We're going to talk about Titanic. Are you ready to watch this movie, James? Talk about run times. It's 17 and a half hours long. I have the original VHS box set. It's 24 cassettes long. (laughs) This is a really, really, really long movie. I have seen it exactly once. I feel like we got it. We've been talking about all of these movies from 1997 and how they all lost to Titanic. It's the Titanic 25th anniversary. We got it. We got to talk about it. And to be fair, we also talked about all those films in 1998 that also lost to Titanic. This is true. So don't miss that episode. That's going to be a fun one. Until then, of course, we want to hear from you guys. We are at Tested Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Talk to us about Tootsie and New York City and soap operas and mimes and whatever the hell you want to talk to us about. We're always here. We're always listening. We love hearing from you guys. And we'll see you next week. Bye.